0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Anna Noyes, author of the debut story collection, *Goodnight, Beautiful Women, which was named a New York Times editor's choice. Goodnight, Beautiful Women is a collection of 11 stories, all taking place in and around Maine. The stories focus on different aspects of women's lives and often reveal the clandestine and sinister forces that can prey on female vulnerability, as well as the mysterious and beautiful inner lives of young girls, mature women, and all the ages in between. I asked Noyes how she would characterize the stories in her book.
1: I think my approach point for these stories was when I really started to try to articulate what I was writing about, because initially I was just writing story after story, sort of naturally drawing on my own obsessions, which fall along similar lines of relationships women have to other women, women and girls, mother and daughters, um, people in Maine, sort of stories drawn from my own experience and life experience and the women around me. And those just started to accumulate. But when I realized there were resonances story to story, and that it was sort of building a body of work, I started thinking about the stories as certain qualities arising in these characters, certain latencies, and those latencies came in many different forms. So it might be uh, mental illness or emerging sexuality, or just sort of an uncomfortable feeling like uh, sadness or physical illness, many different forms. But whatever these uprisings were, they had the potential to threaten the bonds my characters held with the people that loved them the most. And I think that's the story that I really see myself telling again and again is these sort of transformations or potential transformations that risk making my characters exiled from their communities or their families or their relationships and their positions of sort of good daughter or good wife or good friend and whether they can come back from that precipice of exile and Back to a place of belonging, or whether they feel in some way cut off, um, no longer recognized, no longer able to recognize themselves. So that seemed to me really the driving force of the stories, though I didn't articulate that to myself until pretty late in the game
0: you said earlier you know that these stories are kind of about the things that obsess you and that you know there are these relationships between women mother and daughter and friends and romance and why do you think that's what obsesses you
1: I've been wondering about my obsessions because it's not and that that's a very basic kind of uh normal, uh, list of my obsessions, <laughs> but they get even stranger. Like I'm also obsessed with witches <laughs> and female hermits and sort of female recluses and, um, insane asylums. And I think that all of those things in trying to, I mean, they just sort of grab my attention and I don't really probe into the why of why I can't let these things go, but I do think they all, fall into a similar category of female outliers. Even, even when I'm writing about relationships, it's relationships that don't quite fit the traditional mold of a mother-daughter relationship or a, a, a husband-wife partnership, or there's something that's sort of chafing against these traditional things. And I'm so used to reading and seeing narratives of women within their traditional roles existing with some comfort (laughs) and uh in my own life I feel a a sort of disquiet in these when put up against these roles and I think a lot of people do too but it's it's not a narrative you read quite as often and so I'm not really sure why I'm drawn to stories of women who can't stay within those bonds and um who in some ways sort of are really on the precipice of, of an undoing or of something that feels very troubling. But I think for me, there's also a lot of intrigue and strength to people in that place.
0: Well, it's interesting. Cause I, I feel like you have 11 stories in this collection and not all of them, but I guess what stuck with me was that so many of these young women were undone by someone doing something to them that they should not have done. Yes. Most of them were young girls in situations where they were sexually used or abused by older men. And that is kind of what they, what passed them into the next level of their life. Can you talk about that a little?
1: I can. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, that wasn't something I really a- approached consciously. I was basically trying to write about women's bodies and women's experiences in those bodies. I think that's how I approached the sort of, the more uh, sexual aspects in the stories. And I had read a story in high school called Back Teen that, by the author Molly McNett from her collection, One Dog Happy. And actually, it was in college that I read it. But it was a story that had an experience of a ten-year-old girl sort of grappling with all this external threat and strangeness and uh, upheaval in her life through these really dark fantasies that she was having about, you know, rapists that might come to her house and how a doctor might treat her afterwards. And she was basically, um, wiping herself with antibacterial bactine, Um, and it felt like a really truthful reflection of the way a child in their sort of magical child logic way would deal with uh, something big and scary that they didn't quite understand. And it, but it also felt like a really sort of startling and new narrative to me about and, and knew in the ways that we rarely see a frank, strange, explicit telling of a girl or even a woman's um, personal sexual experience on the page like that. And a lot of the readers I was in class with were really revolted and freaked out. And and that made sense to me because we hadn't read anything in that vein. And we'd read a lot of you know, sexual stories with men as the protagonists um, and with men sort of acting on younger girls. Like you you read um, Where Are You Coming From, Where Have You Been by Joyce Carol Oates or like Lolita or these kinds of narratives. Um, and so I think in my work, what I was aiming to do was to tell a range of embodied female experiences with their bodies as the sort of perspective point of the story. And it, it is true that in the course of telling that range of experience, uh, many, of the, many of the stories do have trespass in them. Some of them have rapes, um, have these outside people acting on the girls. But I, my hope is that the, the sort of fulcrum of the stories and their center is within the bodies of the the girls and the girls who are narrating, and that they're not really seen from a distanced, outside sort of objectifying perspective, but to tell what it feels like to move through those experiences in a in a very sort of um, intimate and and deep way, um, and and I was trying to sort of explore a range of experiences. So I think there are girls who are acted upon in this. I think there are also girls who have agency. Um, I think there are also ways the body is explored that aren't uh, like a UTI, something, <laughs> something that everybody deals with isn't, isn't overtly um, somebody being acted upon or acting upon somebody else, but just is, a, is sort of an exploration of these things that happen within our body. That are sexualized, that have some sort of sexual quality, but that 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 feel very, very personal and and close. You're listening to First
0: Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anna Noyes, author of Good Night, Beautiful Women. Another thing I noticed in these stories was that there were a lot of stories with a missing parent. Maybe a mom had died or the parents weren't together or in some cases, it was a parent who wasn't really completely comfortable with being a parent, maybe wanted to be a friend to their child instead of a parent, and were sort of abdicating some of their duties. Can you talk about that?
1: You know, I think that may be something that arises a bit naturally from my own circumstance. My parents are divorced, and I have, uh, my mom has a boyfriend, and I have a stepmother. And so I think sort of unique family assemblages come more naturally to me than very whole collected families <laughs> because I've spent my whole life in this sort of not splintered family but um not the traditional family that you might expect and sort of building building a family um assuming a family that is not you know, not my birth parents together in the same room. Also, it's hard for me, I enjoy sort of focusing on one primary relationship at once. So, in a story, in any of the stories, I think they are about, you know, the the parental and child stories, I think they're about one of the relationships, the father to the daughter in Safest Houses, or, you know, the mother to the daughter in Glow Baby, And kind of exploring uh, where there is tension in that one relationship or where there is fear or what is surprising. And I think in terms of that question of the parents who want to be sort of like friends to their children, I think that comes back to that kind of slippage of roles, chafing within traditional roles, I think what it is to be... a, 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 you know, nurturing and supportive and sound of mind mother, for instance, was a very interesting topic to me and one I returned to many times and um, the ways in which a child can often nurture a parent instead of vice versa or the ways in which a parent who's somebody you expect to sort of give you this all-encompassing love, unconditional love, you know, when that, when that kind of thing um, falters in some small way uh, or the person that you think is the safest to you isn't actually behaving in a safe way, I think that's a very interesting dynamic to me. So uh, just trying to explore when the, the space of love and safety is threatened and what exists beyond that space. And I think that kind of goes back to that, you know, this is where you belong and where everything fits into its neat roles and this is this sort of exile space where things are kind of out of whack and kind of out of balance and it's a much more dangerous terrain
0: well you had a quarry in several of your stories that it was the focal point of your first story where a woman's husband drowns in the quarry and then another story where these two sisters who are about 5 years apart i believe are living near the quarry and they're not allowed to swim but they that is the place where a much older man comes into the sort of comes into their life as their neighbor who potentially has his sights on the 10-year-old but is sleeping with the 15-year-old
1: the quarry space is one I keep coming back to and have always come back to throughout my life of writing. I lived beside a rock quarry um, when I was four with my mom in an Airstream trailer just for a couple months. And I sort of vaguely remember the experience, but I was never allowed to get near it because quarries are very, very dangerous. I think that comes across in the stories. But, you know, people really do dump a bunch of they use them as sort of a dump there really are old cars that are down in quarries and you know sort of machinery that's left behind and these precipices that drop off at an at a moment's notice you know you'll be walking along in the sort of shallows and then the cliff face can just plunge and so it was a very in from sort of ruminating in my memory at this sort of Space almost of pre memory, it's taken on this huge, big significance and sort of mysterious quality. And then when I was older, I was never allowed to swim in quarries. And my mom would always warn me that if you swim in a quarry, you could get a yeast infection and of all the dangers of diseases and the There are hypodermic needles on the rocks. And, you know, I think some quarries are very, very nice, but not the ones I wanted to swim in. And so that kind of gave me this kernel for the quarry as a locus for this story of sexual threat and sort of a mother trying to protect these girls. And it seemed like a very rich space to explore I've written poems about the quarry, <laughs> I can't, maybe because I still have yet to swim in one or even really spend much time looking at one. It's, it's this sort of mysterious, murky, uh, rich image in my head. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on
0: writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Anna Noyes, author of Good Night, Beautiful Women. This interview was recorded via Skype. One of the stories that I liked the best was called Drawing Blood. Yes. And that was a, it's not necessarily an easy story to read. It's got a pretty, I would say, kind of a complex structure. It's told in first person, and it's about a woman who, as a child, watched a neighbor who lived next door and then... The neighbor's family sort of fell apart. The father died. And this neighbor girl comes to live with her as, as basically a servant. They're very different classes. And then in their later teen years, they meet a man who first takes out the servant, but then marries the girl. And he's um, wealthy and of the same class. And the parents sort of castigate the server out, let her go from their family life and he's kind of a violent lover. Can you talk about that story and the time period and maybe the impetus for that?
1: Yeah. So this one has a, a pretty interesting backstory. It sets it slightly apart from the other stories in the collection. So I'm glad you picked it out as being a bit unique. Um, I was trying to write actually about a woman named Audrey Munson, who is, was a famous model and um, artist model. And she was one of the first nude film stars um, in the early 1900s. And she was actually the inspiration for many of the, you know, visages around New York City and beyond. So you can find her face on like 20 statues or something in New York. She, she grew up in, in New England. Uh, she grew up actually in upstate New York and left to have this wild life as this nude film star and was in New York City. And then through some sort of scandal and shame, ended up moving back home with her mother and taking, I think it was maybe cyanide, some, some sort of pill um, as an attempt at suicide. And because of that, she was sentenced by a judge to be in a mental home, um, an asylum For And she was there until she was 106 years old from the time she was in her 40s. Um, So that was something, that story was just something I was like ruminating with and really drawn to for many years and didn't know how to tell it. And so I started to try and tell it with the structure, a, a fictionalized version drawing on the character of Audrey Munson as the maid with this narrator who is her, you know, her, the, the woman who lives in the house that she tends and who she has an affair with when she's 16. And, and I had written in all the sort of Audrey Munson-based material where the, the character of Eva, who's the maid, ends up being exiled from the home and she goes to New York and, you know, the other character the narrator goes and watches her in her silent nude film and this huge architecture larger architecture that included this initial story idea and then returning to it later in edits I felt and in the writing I felt like the narrator was actually a more interesting character to me than the one I thought I was interested in and her story became a lot deeper and darker than I expected and sort of basically grabbed the reins back from my initial idea. And I ended up cutting out most of the extra material that had any of the scaffolding of the Audrey Munson story and what is left is the story drawing blood. No, I was also sort of digging into the coffers of my many generations back family history and had always wanted to write a story about a woman who was uh, raped or sort of had some brutality done to her on her wedding night. Um, and That had been a story idea that I've I'd been working with for maybe five or more years and hadn't quite found the right avenue to tell it.
0: Because you're so interested in your characters' bodies, I'm wondering how much of your body is engaged when you write. And by that, I mean, does your body know what you're writing? Is the, your body part of your intuition?
1: I think so. And that's a sort of vague thing to try to describe. But um, certainly the physicality of my body as I'm writing, it gets like very, very... Um, rigid and tense. And <laughs> I always write in, I wrote most of these stories anyway, in very brief, ferocious, um, very short stretches, like sometimes overnight. So I think that is, it, it almost evokes this sort of like trance feeling or, um, and I also think, yeah, that my body is sort of a, a good barometer for what is working intuitively and what isn't um it's something that i am very very much trying to sense almost like to put my body imaginatively into the spaces i'm writing um and imagine what it would feel like to move through these spaces or to have my body acted on in the ways that the characters bodies are acted on and to feel an emotional feel my way through the emotional thread of the story in that way um which sounds sort of um, maybe hocus pocusy, you know, and I've done, I've been, I've been in uh, plays before and done some acting and I don't know, I think I, I, I can just feel the resonance of certain actions my characters take in my own body and use my own body as, you know, a, draw, a drawing board or a sort of inspirational grounds for, for these experiences.
0: Well, can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes, I'd love to. I'm going to read a passage from Sula by Toni Morrison. Sula lifted her head and joined Nell in the grass play. In concert, without ever meeting each other's eyes, they stroked the blades up and down, up and down. Nell found a thick twig and with her thumbnail pulled away its bark until it was stripped to a smooth, creamy innocence. Sula looked about and found one too. When both twigs were undressed, Nell moved easily to the next stage and began tearing up rooted grass to make a bare spot of earth. When a generous clearing was made, Sula traced intricate patterns in it with her twig. At first, Nell was content to do the same. But soon she grew impatient and poked her twig rhythmically and intensely into the earth, making a small neat hole that grew deeper and wider with the least manipulation of her twig. Sula copied her and soon each had a hole the size of a cup. Nell began a more strenuous digging and, rising to her knee, was careful to scoop out the dirt as she made her hole deeper. Together they worked until the two holes were one and the same. When the depression was the size of a small dishpan, Nell's twig broke. With a gesture of disgust, she threw the pieces into the hole they had made. Sula threw hers in, too. Nell saw a bottle cap and tossed it in as well. Each then looked around for more debris to throw into the hole. Paper, bits of glass, butts of cigarettes, until all the small, defiling things they could find were collected there. Carefully, they replaced the soil and covered the entire grave with uprooted grass. Neither one had spoken a word.
0: So tell me why you chose this.
1: I read Sula when I was really pretty young about... 12, passed down by my mom, and it immediately became my favorite book. I thought it was so beautiful, and I hadn't reread it until very recently, but as I was rereading this, it really struck me um, how many things there were in it that I so admired, and that felt very sort of essential to to me as a writer, Um, the intimacy of this sort of very, very close, um, kind of very complex relationship between young girls, the way a sense of sexuality and not necessarily threat, but um, something a little unsettling is pervasive in these very sort of normal seeming childhood activities like I am. All, I was always digging in the grass and dealing with the sort of natural world and making little tunnels and holes um, and I think it doesn't belabor the loaded imagery too much but it's very very rich I think even though it seems very everyday and to me very tense and I love I love stories that, take the, that honor the sort of small physical details as being very dramatic and loaded.
0: Can you read something that you wrote? It could be something that was difficult or something that changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yeah, I, I'd love to read a short passage from my story, Tree Law. Being home with Kimmy now, I miss mornings alone on the bow most of all when the wind wasn't stirred up yet and light was just coming soft over the islands. I miss feeling the flex of new muscles that I didn't know I had and the ache in my arms from hauling traps and in my legs from bracing for balance on the slick deck. It felt good to be starved by the time we were done setting traps, feeling quick and light. And after that first day, the boat smell didn't bother me at all. It was with me all night, no matter how clean I got salt, In my dreams, I'd bait traps and drop traps and empty traps and stack them. I remember a lobster with no claws, wriggling like a snake beneath the others in the trap. Drill called it a pistol, said it shot its arms off to get free or because it got scared. He passed it to me, but I spooked when I held it, flung it overboard. So tell me about that. I chose this passage because this was one of the stories, one of the few stories in the collection that I really edited very carefully and it took me many many drafts I had it accepted by the literary magazine a public space and we worked for about four months to trim it back and I kept moving in the wrong direction and adding too much here and adding too much there I think my tendency is to add um, let things sort of keep growing and growing but I in the final round of edits really had to subtract things and to question every little minute detail that I'd included. And this was a passage I liked because I had initially had a long paragraph about them finding a sea cucumber in the boat, not a lobster. And I was, when I was questioning, what am I up to? What am I doing? Sort of piece by piece by piece, I came to that sea cucumber and I really just loved how sensory and delicious the idea of holding a sea cucumber was. If you've ever held one, they're like very slimy. And, um, it was very, you know, it was a very sort of evocative and easy to hold, to imagine holding, um, object. And then, but beyond that, why a sea cucumber? And so I, when I came across the idea of these lobsters called pistols that have no claws, that detail seemed a lot more freighted because they go on to rob a house. And so having them find this pistol and be freaked out by it, and she throws it into the water and it's sort of like, has a resonance of getting rid of evidence. And, you know, it, all, it felt like a, a great way to sort of condense and amplify that desire to have her holding something from the water that was just basically a physical desire that I wanted something in the hand in that moment. Where do you write? I will for the first draft, write Almost anywhere. I jot down little ideas often in moving vehicles like trains or airplanes. Um, And then I'll do later drafts, like, in a notebook, in my room, or even outside, um, at a typewriter, at a desk. And then the final draft, I almost always write, which, which ends up really being more like the rough draft, but the uh, the first things sort of feel like initial dabblings that are just sort of little sketches here and there. The final rough, complete whole thing, I will write often in bed or in like a really comfortable chair because I'm writing it in one stretch. So I need a place where I can hunch over.
0: <laughs> and what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I hang out with my friends quite a lot. I do a lot of gabbing. Um, I go for really long walks. I eat. I'm a big eater. Um and I watch bad television. <laughs> Um, I, I I'm really drawn to TV that's as opposed to my reading and writing tendencies I can only watch the lightest things on TV and I, I sort of recoil from anything that's too heavy so I watch a lot of like Gilmore girls
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: You know that's changed throughout my life but when I was younger I showed it to my mom often and um, first and I've showed it to um, like my ex-boyfriend, he was a writer and a poet and I would always show it to him first. Um, And now I really don't show it to anybody, which I don't know is the best approach (laughs) because then I keep it very close and feel like it's sort of unfit for human eyes. Um, But I think soon I'll start showing some things to my agent. Sometimes I just show things to a workshop also that are that are it's the first time they've ever it's ever seen the light of day, you know, I'll just pass it over to 15 people and that really is a harrowing time. How have
0: you dealt with rejection?
1: You know, rejection I can I'm surprised to say that I can let it go pretty quickly. It stings me. I get defensive for about an hour. And then I usually let it wash off my back, especially if it's something like an, an acceptance or a rejection that's very straightforward. If it's um, more complex criticism of my work, that can be a little harder to take. But I think acceptance and praise is, is harder for me to deal with or is more detrimental to a good writing day for me. When I get good news, I always feel hungry immediately for even more good news and get sort of caught up in googling myself and get overwhelmed by it and crawl into bed and it's weird how good things and bad things sort of register in a similar way physically for me that is not what doesn't make much sense logistically but um or logically but i can't i can't really parse i can't really distinguish between the two and what is your favorite word I wonder if someone has said this word before on the show, but I would say my favorite word is tenderness. Um, I was just reading Mary Ruffell, Ruffell's uh, "Madness, Rack, and Honey," and there's a quote in it from Galway Cannell. It says the secret title of every good poem might be tenderness, and that resonated for me for my own work because I think even though I try to strip my work of sentimentality or romanticism i never want to strip it of tenderness and i'm always trying to find what is very tender and very fragile and maybe to see how i can threaten that tenderness a little bit um but you but keep it intact ultimately i always want to keep it intact so that's a word i keep very close as I'm writing.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Anna Noyes, author of Goodnight Beautiful Women. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The first draft music is produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.